Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Alt Med podcast. My name is Andrew Dowling. With me, as always, my co-host Mitch Kurtz. Looking fresh, Mitch. Thank um, you. <laughs> it's a big week here in Victoria, and we have one of the stars of the show joining us on the podcast today. We're absolutely thrilled that we've been able to steal her for a short window this week in a very manic week leading up to the state election. Uh, it is none other than the leader of the Reason Party and member of the Upper House in the Victorian Parliament, Fiona Patton. Fiona, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you to both of you for the invitation. I, you know, yeah, what you talk about is what I love talking about. We appreciate it. Well, we've got so much to tackle and we know that... Um, you know, drug law reform is is one of many pillars that um, that the Reason Party stands upon. But um, maybe if we could just for our listeners get a bit of your background and and how you got into politics. Yeah, I was. Um, I think. Look, I think like lots of politicians, it's never it's not a path that you choose. I certainly was not planning to be a politician. I was, but I started as a fashion designer. But then I got involved um, around HIV and AIDS uh, and I got involved in, I got politicised around that because I saw the discrimination happening for my brother, for my friends who were gay, who were contracting HIV. And at that time, I also got involved in harm reduction. So I was a volunteer on needle, needle and syringe exchange, um, mobile buses, and I got involved in sex work. Uh, I initially met sex workers, um, then uh, worked for a little bit myself. But it was then I worked for years as a um, in an industry association representing small businesses that were being discriminated against for a range of reasons. And all of that led me to creating the sex party, which um, in was created in 2010. In 2014, I was elected in Victoria. And in 2016, we quite rightly or sadly um, changed our name from the Sex Party to the Reason Party. And so, yeah, so I was elected in 2014. And yeah, as you've mentioned, I'm up for re-election re -election now. Well, it's... Um... Yeah, it's it's a wonderful thing that you were elected to the upper house. You've been a, a wonderful voice for so many Victorians. And I think just hearing your story just now, it, it seems that you you appear to be courting topics that that are stigmatized. And I just wonder whether it's, you know, HIV, sex work, drugs, um, you know, even more recently, the Lord's Prayer in Parliament. Apparently that's <laughs> off limits, but Maybe you can just talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, what you've learned in dealing with each of those topics about stigma and about fear and and how it, how it, how to best overcome that. It's it's a great question, Andrew, and it's also it's also a really big question. Um, in you're right. In many ways, it it is those those really hard topics that have taken our passion and it's where we have advocated and possibly it's where we've where we and where we've been successful we've now in victoria seen the full decriminalization of sex work 
And we know that the criminalise, as I use that as an example, because we know that the criminalisation of something um, is what causes the stigma in many areas. So the fact that sex work was criminalised, the fact that the use of, of, of many drugs is criminalised, that is what creates the stigma and the shame about those activities. It's not the activity itself. And when I used to speak to sex workers, they'd say, you know, and myself, the job is easy. It's telling people what you do that's hard. And mm -hmm. that goes across the board, um, probably less so the Lord's Prayer, although that's another difficult one where, <laughs> you know, we're increasingly becoming a secular nation, yet um, bizarrely, the Victorian Parliament every morning we are asked to recite the Lord's Prayer as a way of starting the business of the day. Mm. And it doesn't reflect our community. And I think that's that's what we've been able to, um, I think that's what we've been able to do is, you know, try and bring the Parliament along to where mm. the community actually is. Yeah, I mean, if it serves some sort of utility, like, for example, if I feel like anyone would be happy to recite the Lord's Prayer if it meant that someone like Bernie Finn wouldn't be cranky throughout Parliament <laughs> for the day. But unfortunately, there's just no utility in it. Um, no. And you're right, it doesn't reflect community standards. But I also, that, that point you raised about, you know, it's the fact that it's criminalised. I, I think as someone who is now central to our lawmaking um, organ in, in Victoria, you know, what we decipher as being right or wrong um it, it creates a, a feeling of safety for some people people are i suppose uh, you know not prisoners but we, we take some degree of comfort in being able to draw lines around acts or behaviors that we deem to be okay and those which are not and it's you know telling i think that most people wouldn't think twice about having a drink but we know that alcohol is is a much more harmful drug than many others that we say it's not okay to. So how do you feel now about being in parliament and being um, charged with, with the task of convincing your colleagues to redraw the lines, as it were? I've, I'm impatient and <laughs> I, I, and I've had to learn some patience, but I am impatient. And I, I think when I was first elected and I was really surprised at, how long everything took, just the procedures of the parliament, you know, the the way that we would speak endlessly and repetitively about legislation. We couldn't just go, right, who agrees, who doesn't, um, and on we go. We would have these endless um, conversations that, as I say, were repetitive. So I, I, I am still frustrated by the time things take, but I am also acknowledging that we have made steps in the right direction. So mm. we we are moving and, you know, I was, Victoria was the first state to decriminalise or to legalise medicinal cannabis or and recognise it. And I was in the chain, I was in the parliament when that happened and, you know, seeing how you can affect change and um, it, it's not easy, but I've been able to affect change in, a range of areas and the conversation around cannabis and around medicinal cannabis and you know in particular possibly medicinal cannabis and driving 
we're still not there, but we've progressed a long way. Mm. You know, we're not having the same conversations about people having bongs for breakfast and then pretending they have a prescription. You yeah. know, the the community yeah, sorry to jump in is, is is in part due to your inquiry into the use of medicinal or into sorry cannabis, not just medicinally, but in the use of cannabis in Victoria, which I think is a great um, document to be able to, as you would have done, share with your your colleagues to actually say, well, actually, it's not, yeah, it's not people waking up and having bongs. That's a very narrow view of of use in Victoria. Mm. Absolutely, and you know that. <laughs> In the end, that was a that was a difficult inquiry to navigate because, you know, the the cons- many politicians are conservative by nature. So, despite the overwhelming evidence, despite the fact that the over a thousand submissions that we received recommended that we take a pathway towards not only decriminalisation but regulation mm. um, of 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 cannabis. I couldn't bring all of my colleagues with me. And, and so our recommendations are quite modest. Our findings are, are much more progressive. So, mm. you know, the, in one of those funny things, the people who wanted to, you know, fight me on the recommendations didn't fight me on the findings. So the finding says <laughs> cannabis should be legalised. And yeah. then the recommendation says well, maybe not now. Maybe we should think about this a bit more and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, Would you prefer to see it legalised or decriminalised? Look, I I think it's a step-through process, Mitch, and it's again, it's a really good question. From a state perspective, you know, we're dealing with our constitution and so legalising cannabis in Victoria, um, we have to pay attention to the federal um, Drugs Act, but we also have to recognise that where we've seen the legalisation or the regulation of it, um, there has been a tax component. So there's been there's been that honey there to governments to say mm. there there is a there is a taxation, there is a revenue that you can receive from that. And at a state level, our constitution doesn't allow us to um, enforce a tax. So. Mm. I I would like to see it regulated, and I think there are solutions to that at a state level. But first thing, let's just decriminalise it. Let's mm. decriminalise the use and possession of drugs. Let's allow people to grow their own. Um, I recognise that probably, you know, much like tomatoes, the vast majority of us, um, while we, you know, even if we could grow our own, won't grow our own grow our own because of our circumstances, whether that's, you know, we've got kids or we live in an apartment that doesn't enable us to grow. So I think that's where I believe that to be completely equal, we have to provide other ways for people to be able to legally access cannabis. I actually know a few people who are being in an apartment. It's not the issue. But it's interesting. True. I mean, we can grow tomatoes in a par- in, in apartments um, yeah. <laughs> using very good hydroponic systems and closets and the like. <laughs> the design of the um, Victorian Parliament 
has that sort of subterranean section that was recently sort of <laughs> in. I, I'm just querying what's in there. But anyway, that might have uh, co- correlated with the decriminalization of uh, all the other drugs that it came as well. I'm not sure. Um, um, I, look, I think it's a really, it's actually a really funny point because, you know, cannabis was legal in Victoria. You know, mm-hmm. I've got this. I've got this wonderful book from a Camberwell pharmacy where they registered, um, you know, people who bought uh, tinctures, indica tinctures that bought THC tinctures. Um, they were also selling heroin and cocaine um, from this um, from this chemist. But you're right. Like you know, it it was legal, and when the Parliament first opened, um, one suspects that there may have been many. MPs who had had access to heroin, cocaine, cannabis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very interesting. Well, we have we have access to forms of those types of things in in everyday society anyway. You know, we have opioids in hospital. We you even have some forms of cocaine. As I think it's an eyedropper for certain circumstances. There's, I don't want I mean, to know about your Friday night, Mitch. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in the eye. I mean, yeah, people would say that the cocaine available in Victoria is not really cocaine. Yeah, it's a little bit like. I'm actually, I'm actually curious. You know, um, obviously we have Tasmania that's uh, allowing people to drive on on cannabis. They were the first one. Unfortunately, we'd like to think we could have got it here in Victoria first, but. You know, the, the 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 even more southerners got onto it a little quicker than us. What do you think the future does look like at the moment for that particular topic? Uh, this this is absolutely crucial, Mitch, for the for the future of our medicinal cannabis industry. You know, we cannot exclude our patients patients from driving. It mm. makes no sense. It makes no road safety sense. It is purely a stigma driven thing and it is purely a, a an issue of fear and and you mentioned Tasmania well Tasmania didn't change its laws it just basically said if you've got a prescription for a medication then you have a defense to any roadside testing um, of that medication mm-hmm. and we our legislation was a little bit more particular here in Victoria and that so you know the 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 defense and the the ability to drive while on benzodiazepines on opioids on histamines on anything that might make you drowsy or make you um uh, uh, might impair you uh we 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 have that but because of THC and because of our random drug testing and the way we wrote our legislation for random roadside drug testing that was the problem for us mm. and now it's bringing that back um and it's a very simple amendment that could happen to the legislation i think we've con- we've convinced most people that we can do it mm. um it's just now getting the right time in the parliament for it to happen and my my initial thoughts are that you know, we actually just do this as a trial initially, just say that someone gets pulled over on a roadside drug test and they have a prescription for medicinal cannabis, they, you know, they do not appear impaired, then there should be no offence committed. Mm. Let's start with that um, yep. and and see where we go. And that's what Tasmania does. It's what New Zealand does. It's 
um, we see it in most, you know, most jurisdictions um, don't have this problem because they've never had roadside random roadside drug testing. Yeah, well, no, it's a great point. And I know that there was discussion around, well, should we have an equivalent blood alcohol reading for cannabis? But obviously, as you would know, the drug stays in your system for longer. It, it just doesn't appear to be appropriate. I think it gets really complicated. And it's, you know, it, you know, when you look at what we do for other medication, and this is, we're just talking medicine, we're not talking about adult mm. use of cannabis, we're just talking about those people who are prescribed this medicine. For every other medicine, we just say, don't drive if you're feeling drowsy or feeling mm. impaired. That's yep. what we say. We don't say you can't drive if you're on this medication. Medicinal yeah. cannabis is the only one where we put that prohibition on it. And I think in the first instance, that's what's what need is what needs to change. If we start going down that rabbit hole of, you know, some sort of percentage, some sort of blood alcohol or, you know, blood blood ratio, it's dangerous. And as you say, you know, it it's absorbed into our system through our fats and it's very different to alcohol in mm. that way mm. and the other thing is you know we can go down the impairment testing but we're not impairment testing for people on opioids or benzodiazepines so why would we do this for medicinal cannabis i mm. i think initially we just should say it's a medicine treat it like every other medicine Exactly. Do, you, do you think do you think that would still stand if we did create an adult use recreational market because obviously in a medicinal capacity the assumption at least is that most people have a controlled dosage forms similar to, to benzodiazepines or, or any other type of medication you might get from a doctor if you created a adult use recreational market then you would see consumptions uh, imagine increase beyond that and at that point would you say there might be a call for a blood alcohol or let's call it a bcc <laughs> kind of level or or do you think that um we should still stick with the it doesn't need to be tested at all yeah i look i i i I kind of want to deal. I, I in my my mind <laughs> is like, let's, yeah, let's deal with that when we get to that point. Um, and let's look at what's happening in other jurisdictions. Let's look at what's happening in Canada, you know, and the you know the twenty odd states in in America that yeah. have this. Um, and initially, I just want medicinal cannabis patients who are getting great relief and for the first time in their lives sleeping well. Without pain, feeling like they can get back into life, I want them to be able to to drive. Once we go down that adult use, um, I I still don't, you know, the, it, it it there might be something we can do there. We know that the impairment of cannabis um, is pretty short lived from a driving mm -hmm. perspective. We know that you know it's in the first two hours you're probably the most impaired. Um, and then after that, far less so. And I think up to, you know, probably after four hours, you're not particularly impaired. Mm. Uh, so there, once we legalise it, we are going to have to rethink our roadside drug testing for mm. sure. Mm. Absolutely. Um, no, I think that's right. I don't quite know what it's going to look like, Mitch. I, I think, you know, we'll probably get better at the testing that we do. And, and, Again, if you know, if it, if we get better with impairment, then we might go down that path. But that's going to pick up a whole bunch of people who didn't sleep well, 
and pick up a whole bunch of people who sure yeah you know, i'm not saying it should I, i'm just curious yeah. you know on, on that point about where we kind of sit on that one yeah i think it's good and i think you know impairment's what they use in canada it's what sure. they use in america but they use the traditional walk the line touch the toe you know touch your toes touch your nose um type of basic testing uh and i'm not sure that that would be a goer in australia because we are unique in that we've got random roadside drug testing here yeah. and it's kind of it's embedded in our in our cult yeah not I also feel like we, we like specific numbers to to judge people <laughs> against. Like it, once you leave it up to that, it's very North American to say, "Oh, we'll just do what the what the kind of police interprets the uh, kind of scenario to be." It doesn't feel very Australian. Like it's either you're above 0.05 or you're not, and that's those are the rules. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that feels more Australian to me, at least. But um, yeah, when you start and thinking- it, it there was a recent um, well, it's actually not that recent now, but in one of the magistrates' courts, uh, there was a guy who was in there for driving um, under the, under the well, he tested positive for methamphetamine. Now, it appears that this fellow was a really reckless driver and was driving, he probably hadn't slept for 48 hours as well as testing positive for methamphetamine. But the police just charged him with... Um, uh, driving uh, uh, with being found with meth in his system and the maximum offence that the courts could give him was like a six-month um, licence loss and the magistrate was saying, come on, this person was absolutely impaired. They mm. were out, They were really out of it and the best you can do is charge them with having methamphetamine in their system. You've got, um, so when police can start charging people for being impaired, and there's a law against it, but no one ever gets charged with being impaired. They just get charged with the presence of a drug and because it's lazy policing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think if we do move towards um, a regulated and legal market, they're going to have to, they're going to have to lift their game. Absolutely. And I, I, I do think about on this topic and others, People seem to have this idea because I know that, um, you know, legalizing cannabis and, and decriminalizing, uh, you know, parts of reason and parts of um, the Greens policies. But I, I'm curious about this idea that people seem to have that, you know, anyone who advocates for this cause thinks that there's going to be a single act of parliament, some magnificent omnibus bit of legislation that just is a magic silver bullet that resolves everything. And as you said earlier, patience is something that you learn when you get to parliament. And I think you're right to talk about, you know, drug law reform, um, you know, I guess decriminalizing possession, these sorts of things. In my view anyway, I imagine that these were a sort of first priority um, in the order of things, because of course, these are the types of policies that directly harm Victorians. Mm. And that's right. And, you know, I'm not just talking about decriminalising the use of cannabis. We know that um, 15% of all cases heard before the magistrate's court, and that's like they, they, we're talking tens of thousands of cases are on drug possession and drug use. Mm. They're not on drug manufacturing, drug trafficking, drug distribution, they're on possession. And the vast majority of drug cases, I think about 80% are possession 
charges. Mm. So it it is crazy that people are receiving criminal sentences and we know the majority of those are actually cannabis mm. because it's the most popular it's the most popular uh, illicit drug. So mm. yes, <clears throat> let's move to decriminalization immediately. Yeah. But let's look at a regulatory model and I've been, you know, looking at what are the workarounds, like how can we get around the Federal Act and how can we do that? And there are workarounds, but you're right. It's not just let's just legalise cannabis. There's a a range of other things. Um, But I I must say I was recently in Malta and I've been looking at how the Maltese have done it, and I think that's quite interesting that they've gone for a non-commercial form of regulation so you don't hear people talking about big alcohol big tobacco big cannabis they've they've done a much more of a social club approach and i think that's to me that's that might be a a, a way of mm. alleviating a lot of the fears about cannabis stores opening up next to schoolyards or whatever whatever the unrealistic fears are that people yes. have. I think it sounds similar to it probably borrowed a bit from the, the Spanish kind of grey movement where they have, you know, those cannabis clubs. Yeah. Um, it's, but, it's sorry, Mitch, you're, you're yeah. absolutely right. Um, it is, but they've actually legislated it mm. and regulated it. Mm. And so I, the first, they decriminalised use and possession and grow. Um, and in December this year, the first... Um, social club will get its license and they must be not-for-profit associations. I think they can have a maximum of 500 members. Um, they can grow for those members and, but that what they grow is regulated. It's, it will be tested. Sorry. It will be tested. Um, yeah, it will be tested by um, the government. It'll be, you know, so those sort of health and safety checks to make sure that, you know, people are growing it in a healthy way so it doesn't have mould and, you mm. know, yeah. inappropriate additives and those sorts of things. So there's a government regulation, um, but it's trying to sort of say, trying to get small, uh, yeah, small grows for people that can't grow it themselves. Absolutely in favour of, of that. And I, I think as well, just there is a tendency both, with you know this law and, and and others that we've been touching upon, where people seem to think that if I identify one single problem with what is being proposed, the whole house of cards collapses. Um, I was reading a paper about what the experience has been like in in Canada since they legalized in 2018, and um, there was a research paper where the researchers were writing about how there had been an increase in cannabis poisoning of children um being anyone under the age of of 18 of course and they said this could all be fixed with appropriate warning labels on products and child resistant closures on the containers and it's not it doesn't have a toxicity that causes uh, fatality or, or anything that alcohol or other drugs could do but we're just flagging that this is a problem that needs to be addressed and can be addressed and we don't think in any way that the researchers really made the point of saying we've the, the positives of legalizing cannabis far outweigh. But then, of course, politicians over there will will jump on that paper and, and the same thing happens here. Is that part of the, the day-to-day challenge for you, Fiona? You're absolutely right. It's um, 
you know, I, I think one of the most common catch cries is, well, look what happens with alcohol. You know, yeah. why would you want to legalise another drug? And and I think particularly because, and I think, you know, I, I would say the Greens Party has has been guilty of this, let's treat cannabis like alcohol. Mm. Let's all agree not to say that because, you know, the alcohol industry, um, you know, it is, you know, it has got its problems. And the way we promote alcohol, the way that we've embedded alcohol into our culture is problematic. So mm. let's not try and make, let's not link cannabis to alcohol. Apart from anything, cannabis is nothing like alcohol. Um, it's a completely different product. Mm -hmm. And I think the people who say that um, obviously haven't used cannabis. Yeah, uh, we, we talk know. about this regularly. There's there's a lot of uh, people who try to pigeonhole it. It seems to be falling in, in one of three categories. It either gets linked to alcohol, it, get links to link, linked, it gets linked to big pharma, mm. or it gets linked to tobacco. And it's like, it's like, why can't cannabis be its own industry? Why does it have to fall within the prism of one of the, within the and, paradigm? And it, and of it one has of the three? nuances that I think should um, compel it to have it, it sort of as a standalone in its own field, as do, and maybe we can just briefly touch on psilocybin medicines, because I know, um, you know, you, you've raised this in the parliament, probably the first person in the Victorian Depart parliament to talk about this. How did that experience go? You know, it's, um, <laughs> look, when I started talking about MDMA and psilocybin in the parliament, people do get a bit excited, um, <laughs> particularly when you start talking about it in a positive way. And I, you know, it, it, I, I just, I mean, I did a couple of, of weird, what would be seen as strange things, but I raised psilocybin and MDMA with the health minister and just around increasing access to it and enabling access. And I was, in most cases, I was actually talking about a specific patient, specific doctor, and a special access scheme. Then I changed my track and I started talking to the vet, the Minister for Veterans Affairs mm. and started talking to him about what, if, if there was something on the market that could help with crippling PTSD, wouldn't he want to make that available? to veterans in Victoria. And that got a different response. Yeah. And then, you know, Victoria's trying to pride itself on being a, oh, not trying to, I mean, it, it is going a long way, on being a med medical research capital. Yeah. And, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, got a lot of good startups and a lot of good medical research happening here. So then I started speaking to the ministers relevant to that area about the, the opportunities that psilocybin and MDMA had here. And that has led to some funding. And we've got we've got some really great research going on at the Brain Park at Monash University. And um, we've got that great research going on at St. Vincent's Hospital on um, end-of-life anxiety with psilocybin. Mm. And weirdly, because you start talking about it in medical terms, because you're starting to talk about it in um in those areas that it, it, there's people have been quite receptive to yeah. it. Not quite enough to, you know, fully change the laws to make it easier for, for um, researchers and patients and doctors to access it. But certainly 
we're starting to see a lot more trials and and people are starting to see the opportunities of these new medications that may be able to help people um, with particularly with mental health um, coming onto the market. But Mitch, I think again goes to that fear of the other side that we don't want psilocybin, we don't want these these medications to go into big pharma. Mm, so we're, not ideally. And it's trying to find that balance. You know, we I mean yeah, we I, don't I, want Johnson and Johnson owning magic mushrooms. I, no. I'm I'm torn on that in in some ways, I must say, because on the one hand, they have the ability to actually do the clinical trials that would prove yeah. their efficacy. And to be honest, if Johnson and Johnson had um, those types of drugs instead of other, you know, much more harmful, and they were profitable. I, I feel like, I feel like it might be better, uh, you know, the the lesser of two evils in in, in a sense. Um, I, so I, I am torn. You, you never want to wish Johnson and Johnson any more <laughs> financial right. fortune than they've had or power. But but if you could swap it out a little bit, yeah, you know what I mean. I I am slightly torn on that. I would say in, in some respects. Mm. Oh, look, I mean, what they, you know, I was, when I was out at Brain Park talking to them about the really terrific work uh, they're doing out there, and they're not only doing terrific work with patients who've got high-level anxieties, they're also doing this terrific work that all of the therapists have to have a course of psilocybin, and mm. we're not talking just, you know, a little bit of a few magic mushrooms in your tea. We're talking full-blown, like, right. like massive doses. You are out-of-body experience kind right. of doses. And the therapists all go through that. So when they're treating their patients, they know what their patients are doing. Mm. And it's the first time I understand that that, that research has been done on, on the effect of therapists um, and and the doctors having experienced psilocybin and how that impacts on the therapy that they provide to their patients. It'd yeah. be a very uh, <laughs> different landscape, I imagine, if we forced doctors to have a couple of months on Lyrica um, yeah. just to empathise with their <laughs> patients. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. Now, there's a thought, yeah. yeah. Yeah, You've got yeah, to take it before you prescribe it. <laughs> <laughs> How do, I mean, I was just thinking as well in, in terms of, you know, as a lawmaker and, and with your parliamentary colleagues, isn't there potentially some self-interest here if you've got to do an all-nighter to get some legislation through like <laughs> pandemic bill? I think some mushrooms would have gone down nicely on that. Just occasion. to deal with the other people in parliament or maybe. And and the, the Fruit Loops with the gallows out the front, they weren't, uh, yeah. No, they're, they're not happy people and really... Yeah, a little dose of MDMA could have actually really light, lightened their mood. <laughs> um, I don't know whether it would make legislation pass more quickly, but it would pass more pleasantly. Yes, fun, more fun. Yeah, we would have. It would be a lot happier in there. Yeah. Well, uh, just for those yeah. in in other states tuning into this, I, I just I remember that you know that just seemed to go all night that and you know there was a lot of conjecture about um amendments to the state of emergency powers and this pandemic bill um i'm just curious what, what time did you end up getting that one through and and did you just go home and have a big sleep <laughs> yeah look to, to you know to me that was an easy one you know i i we did 60 hours with voluntary assisted dying oh, you know we goodness. we went through the night um then if you look at 
my bill on safe access zones around abortion clinics. Um, that was an early one. We finished at 4 a.m. on that one. Um, then, <laughs> you know. Still open at that time? Can you wander over the road and have a glass of wine? or <laughs> No, but fun fact, Andrew, that the, the, the library and the restaurant and the, and the members' bar must remain open while Parliament oh. is sitting. They cannot go home. I so love that. <laughs> you can always get a drink at Parliament if Parliament's open. Um, and you can borrow a book as well. well if they want to fit yeah. it into the alcohol uh, system, you must always be able to get a joint at Parliament whilst it's open. So just yeah. curious, does the other side or opponents of these types of legislation is the goal sometimes in, in your experience that possibly you know if you just wear down the other side through just torturous hours of debate that they will give ground and and won't for, is that the strategy it, it's a strategy um it's not an effective one i've never seen it work <laughs> so i've seen them try it many times but i've never seen it work um it but the the it's just a in many ways it's just a delaying mechanism it's also a mechanism for people because throughout that someone's got to be talking mm. so those that really love to talk um and they're opposed to it they talk yeah. the whole yeah. way through it they spend those hours listening to themselves you know probably just, thinking that they're saying really brilliant things no one is watching. Are they, is everyone at the bar at that point? Um, or um, yes, well, no, <laughs> not necessarily. Not me, anyway. But um, uh, I'll I'll be yeah, I'll be in my office, yeah. trying to do something else. Um, <laughs> what, what what do you think a, a realistic um, outcome is over the next few years? You know, we we've asked this question to a few of our guests, and and. <clears throat> It seems to be that people think that CBD might be legalised first and then potentially THC down the line. Um, what are your thoughts on on that? I mean, well, I think you know CBD is largely legalised now. I mean, what we're down yeah. to it's down to a Schedule Four um, medicine. You know, we've got it actually. We've got it at Schedule Two over the counter for very small doses of CBD yeah, in, schedule, in schedule product. Three. Yeah. yeah. Not probably not terribly useful doses, so it's not a terribly useful um, product. But we've we've got that. Uh, I look. I think we're at the cusp. I I don't. I I don't think. I think we're probably two to three years away from. Well, I think we're very close to decriminalisation. I I think that is. I would hope if I'm re-elected, I would hope I would see that in the next term it's certainly one of my priorities mm. um i think we're, we're getting a much more friendly federal government to enable um further regulation of a cannabis industry uh that wouldn't that people would be able to access cannabis without a prescription mm. um you're right initially cbd without a prescription then then th then thc products but you know, cannabis is quite different, and we can't use the the existing the TGA doesn't work for cannabis, no. um, particularly uh, the liquor licensing. Those laws don't particularly work for 
the sale and dispensing of cannabis. So we are going to have to create new systems. However, Canada can show us the way. Colorado, you know, New York, Washington, you name it. There's Illinois. Especially on CBD because, you know, I I can't think of another jurisdiction. Well, there's parts of Asia, I guess, but the the CBD in most of the Western world is just not even – it's barely regulated. It's just it's just whatever goes, you know. Just sell it over the counter online at Aldi. A a Commonwealth descheduling decision. I mean, there's there's always just interplay here. But I just we know um, we're very lucky to have you for so long, Fiona, and how busy you are. But I I think just touching on that um, vision of of the next term, we might just one final question ask you about. What else is on the, um, I guess, the, the the policy agenda for the Reason Party um, for the next term? Yeah, thank you. Um, look, certainly uh, drug, <laughs> drug law reform, absolutely. But I think there's also a lot of justice issues that need to be reformed. You know, we are, we are building prisons instead of houses. Yeah. Uh, we are locking people up because they're homeless, because they have mental health issues. So certainly changing the way our justice system works and looking to the evidence to make that work more effectively. So drug law reform is very much part of that. Housing is very much part of that. Um, I'm really worried around um, women's reproductive rights uh, that we've seen Roe versus Wade in America. We've seen that go backwards. We're seeing really conservative politicians um, being pre-selected in the Liberal Party, but also in Labor. Uh, So I think we are going to have to remain very alert to um, changes to reproductive health rights. And we need to move forward. You know, there's a lot more we need to do on that. And the other area that I am particularly passionate about is a separation of church and state and really trying to to tease out the power that religious organisations have within government, but more importantly, the fact, the privilege that they have, whether that's tax-free status for businesses that make a lot of money, you Mm. know, chaplaincy programs in schools when really we need mental health care workers in schools, not chaplains. And, um, yeah, yeah. so good. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, arguably, that they were they were quite instrumental in the reason that it wasn't those types of groups. It wasn't legalized in New Zealand uh, more recently. Right. You know that that kind of Christian love and, and the types that would make you say the Lord's Prayer um, before yeah. uh, <laughs> engaging. And the one final thing would be looking at logging, um, looking at our climate, and obviously, you know, the role that hemp can play in mm. that. Totally. Um, and that probably goes also to our expansion of CBD because we know we can extract some pretty good CBD from hemp. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I often find this when I, you know, listen to you or, or look at the the party's policies, but all entirely sensible and, and very much would represent a step in the right direction for Victoria. So, yeah, fully support um, all of your efforts and, and the efforts of your candidates at the upcoming election and, We'll see what happens on Saturday. We will, of course, expedite getting this one out before um, Saturday. <laughs> we should have this released in the next 24 hours to um, put this in the ether and, and hope that um, we get a, a few bites before the election. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. It's been a really great conversation. Yeah, no, yeah, thank we you. We appreciate Joe. your time.
Yeah, thanks so much and, and good luck on Saturday. Thank you. Thanks, right. Fiona. Thanks. Bye.